There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. I had this dream that all those hills had been leveled. The house is torn down. I saw it in my dream. And exactly the way I saw it, that's the way it happened. This is the tragedy of my life. Absolutely. I was responsible for uprooting, I don't know, how many hundreds of people from their own little valley and having a whole thing destroyed. It's sort of taken on a mythical sense in people's memories, and then with the feeling that it was unfairly taken from them. So it's, it's no wonder that, uh, that people have strong feelings about it. Uh, he said, please, your sons and a baseball team, let's go to the Dodgers as a family. I'll never go again. I hated it. I didn't enjoy it. It was like dancing on a grave. 1962. In Chavez Ravine, a few miles from downtown Los Angeles, baseball fans crowd the bleachers of the brand new Dodger Stadium to welcome their team from Brooklyn. The stadium sits on 170 acres of freshly cleared land, land that just 12 years earlier was home to over 300 families. The neighborhoods of La Loma, Palo Verde, and Bishop, the neighborhoods of Chavez Ravine. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, friends, let's get this show on the road. How you doing? It's uh, your pal, Tim Hanlon. And of course, it's Good Seats Still Available. It's the curious little podcast adventure uh, that we stumble through each and every week into the uh, journeys and the explorations of what used to be in professional sports i thank you for finding us in the realms and the depths and the just the wide swaths of podcast land we appreciate your finding us and downloading us putting us in your earbuds and uh before we sort of get into the uh the meat of the matter this week i uh, want to assure all of you that we are doing our best to stay safe and healthy and i trust and hope that you are doing uh, the same as well i hope you're listening to all your local and uh, regional authorities uh i uh trust that you're uh finding all the accurate and uh, important information that you need to make all the right health choices and safety choices for you and your households. Uh, And you're doing the right thing by staying at home, helping flatten that curve. Frankly, wherever you are in this country, I don't want to get sort of on a soapbox here, but uh, I I would hope and imagine that by now uh, you are all listening to uh, what needs to be done. And uh, it is a trying time for all of us, uh, yours truly included, of course. Uh, We're trying to do our best to kind of keep our weekly schedule it's our very small and infinitesimal little part of uh, trying to be of help uh, and, and, frankly, trying to distract a little, uh, entertain and educate a little. Uh, we all know that we're uh, fighting various things, whether it's uh, acute uh, illnesses and issues dealing with the virus itself, uh, boredom by being cooped up for so long, and various things in between. So whatever part of the uh, continuum that you're on in this uh, still ongoing challenge that's frankly, is going to last for quite some time and uh, will require all of us to sort of dig deep and uh, be resolute and smart and safe. Uh, we hope we can maybe distract you for 
uh, an hour or so at a time uh, with some interesting sort of uh, backtracks into the various and wacky worlds of uh, sports team and league histories as we uh, we get to into this show uh, here on Good Seats Still Available. Some of those are for frivolous and, and anecdote uh, full and fun and just uh, wacky. And that's that was kind of the original reason we sort of went into this little escapade about three years ago. And you know, Lord knows because uh, there are teams and leagues and all kinds of stuff uh, related to that stuff that are just just out and out uh, outrageous. And uh, we'd love to get into those sort of stories. And we have certainly done a whole bunch of those in our various episodes to date. But, uh, you know, we are also not shy about sort of digging into some stories that are, you know, not so mirth filled and uh, and uh, humorous per se. This week is uh, one of those for sure. And our guest this week, Eric Nussbaum, is our excuse to kind of get into another angle of the Brooklyn slash Los Angeles Dodgers story. And yeah, we've talked a little bit about the Dodgers generally and uh, specifically their move westward, uh, their abandonment, if you will, of Brooklyn, the reasons around some of that, although we want to get a little bit deeper into that in some future episodes. A little bit of uh, the West Coast sort of uh, embrace of the Dodgers as well as the Giants in the late 50s, early 60s, as they tilled some brand new soil uh, on the West Coast and sort of opened the door to more frequent and uh, uh, expansionary uh, uh, stuff in baseball uh, and, frankly, pro sports. But uh, the Brooklyn to Los Angeles Dodgers story is not sort of a direct, clear, and fully noble one, let's be honest. And our guest this week, Eric Nussbaum, uh, the author of the book that we're going to be talking about, uh, the book is called Stealing Home, Los Angeles, The Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. And we get into what effectively is sort of referred to as the Battle of Chavez Ravine, where Dodger Stadium, now the third oldest continuous ballpark in Major League Baseball. Hopefully someday we'll all be able to go back and sort of enjoy uh, in a more leisurely tone the sights, the sounds, and frankly, even the odors and the uh, uh, the ambiance of, uh, of professional baseball again at some point. But uh, in the absence of that in the near term, uh, we're going to get into kind of the story of how Dodger Stadium came to be. And, uh, you know, there's some really, you know, kind of straightforward and maybe sort of uh, in a layman's gloss over, you know, uh, was Walter O'Malley, you know, sort of the, the, the evil uh, uh, baron here and, you know, trying to use uh, the threat of moving to the West Coast and uh, trying to get Brooklyn to build a new baseball stadium and domed at that. You know, it wasn't sort of guaranteed as as Walter O'Malley moved uh, the team lock, stock and barrel to Los Angeles that uh, there was going to be sort of this idyllic Dodger Stadium sort of waiting for him at the end of the the, the road. As a matter of fact, it, it really was not that. And, and it was a whole bunch of stuff that was going on in Los Angeles in the uh, early to mid 1950s, even before. The Dodgers were specifically targeted, if you will, uh, and or O'Malley saw that it would be a path uh, for his Brooklyn Dodgers to move. And the Battle of Chavez Ravine is uh, is a twisted, uh, torturous and frankly, ultimately sad story of of land largely owned by Mexican-Americans at the time in the post-war time, which was literally in the crosshairs of Los Angeles officials around the idea of creating and building affordable public housing in the Los Angeles area, a uh, a progressive and common theme and thread uh, in post-war and uh, early 1950s thinking all around the country, not just Los Angeles, but places like Chicago and New York and, and other major urban areas, how how affordable housing can be built and incorporated into uh, into the landscape and into urban planning as uh, the country continued to grow 
and boom, frankly, in the in the post-World War II era. This story of the Dodgers to Los Angeles is absolutely very much entwined to, into, into that sort of realm. And we get into all of that with uh, with our guest this week, Eric Nussbaum. And, you know, this is a, uh, a story that has uh, perhaps multiple villains, some sadness that's uh, that's part of it. Uh, I, I think as the uh, generations sort of roll on and the Dodgers history continues, uh, like uh, the the land itself, uh, the story can get bulldozed over and forgotten. Uh, and uh, obviously, we uh, want to pick through that story and, and make sure that it uh, stays uh, alive and and uh, importantly uh, in the center of things because uh, it's it's all part of the tableau, the history of baseball in Los Angeles, the Dodgers specifically. And uh, and we uh, get into all of that. Uh, Walter O'Malley, villain or uh, opportunist, the Chandler family in the Los Angeles Times. What's their role in all of this? Uh, how much of this is civic pride versus private business, if you will? What is what is public use? You know, is a baseball team uh, and privately held at that and a profit making venture? Uh, how much of that is uh, for the public good uh, and eminent domain and using that? Uh, to uh, to claim land for such all of that, but plus there's just frankly uprooting of of families, the poor versus the rich, right? Mexican Americans uh, who have uh, were living there at the time and uh, and their their fight to sort of preserve their uh, their way of life, all of that stuff and more uh, in our conversation this week with Eric Nussbaum as we get into uh, his uh, fascinating read again called Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers and the Lives Caught in Between. The clip that you heard there in the beginning is also worth finding and is a great introduction uh, to the story. That uh, film is called Chavez Ravine, A Los Angeles Story. Uh, it ran on PBS's uh, Independent Lens series. Uh, it's uh, produced by a, an entity called Bullfrog Films, uh, narrated, as you might imagine, or you could uh, probably pick up there, by Cheech Marin. Uh, and it's it's a great piece. It features the photography of uh, a gentleman by the name of Don Normark, and it's directed by Jordan, uh, we think it's Mechner or Mechner, and uh, we'll have a link to that on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. A fantastic work that really sort of puts all of this in relief. But uh, the primer uh, is our conversation uh, this week, as well as the book Stealing Home with our guest, Eric Nussbaum, coming up in just a few moments. Uh, please stay tuned uh, for a fascinating, revealing conversation. Uh, before we get there, a, a quick promotional uh, note. Uh, by all means, uh, why don't you visit our friends at sportshistorycollectibles.com. This week in particular, uh, our friend Dean Mitchell and friends has a ton of great stuff featuring the Dodgers, both of the Brooklyn variety and the Los Angeles variety. You'll find a bunch of things and memorabilia and uh, postcards and uh, printed material and buttons and uh, all kinds of things around Dodger Stadium as well. And it was uh, not called Dodger Stadium in the first few years of its existence because the Los Angeles Angels uh, another team you can find more stuff from at sportshistorycollectibles.com. We're also inhabitants of that for the first couple of years. But uh, all of that stuff, uh, the Dodgers, the Brooklyn uh, version, the Los Angeles version, the Los Angeles Angels, all of those. And by the way, all kinds of teams and leagues and sports of your great stuff to be found. Tremendous mementos and uh, and memorabilia at sportshistorycollectibles.com. This is the stuff that's of, uh, of the highest quality. It's not sort of your generic eBay type of, of wares. Uh, and Dean and friends in uh, San Diego are uh, meticulous uh, in their uh, aggregation of these great uh, items, uh, the photography of such. And of course, we have a, a great uh, discount for you by uh, using the promo code GOODSEATS at sportshistorycollectibles.com. You'll get 15% 
off everything you buy from the site. It's a, it's a great deal and it's a great site. You'll want to bookmark it. And as they say, visit it early and often. Uh, and again, sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS, not only for Dodgers stuff, uh, but all kinds of great uh, sports history from all kinds of leagues and teams, frankly, that you may not even remember. And you're going to get 15% off all of your purchases when you use that promo code GOODSEATS. Once again, sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code Good seats. Thank you, Dean. And uh, we appreciate your patronage of the show. We appreciate you listening out there and uh, giving maybe uh, the site a visit, uh, maybe a purchase and uh, give us a few uh, shekels of love. That'd be great. And uh, we now encourage you to continue to listen to a fascinating and wonderful and uh, enlightening conversation with our guest this week. Coming up, Eric Nussbaum, as we talk about the Dodgers and their move to Los Angeles and the building and the construction and the pretense of all of it at Dodger Stadium. Here's our chat that we had just a couple of days ago. Please enjoy. Why don't you give our audience a bit of a a little bit of background about you generally? I I suspect that this is not necessarily your day job talking about this topic, but uh, and maybe a little bit of how you sort of became interested in this uh, in this part of the story of the Dodgers and why committing your life uh, at least partially to to writing a book and uh, going deep on it. More than partially. <laughs> uh, it's been an all-consuming process the last couple of years. I am a journalist. I'm a writer. I worked as an editor at a place called Vice for almost four years uh, in their sports department. And before that, I wrote for places like ESPN, the magazine, and Sports Illustrated, Deadspin, Daily Beast. Um, and I have always wanted to write this particular book. It is a story that I feel very passionately about and that I've felt strongly about since I was in high school. So this project is sort of the culmination for me of years of kind of practicing as a writer and researching and kind of convincing myself and the world that I could tell this story. So what, what piqued your interest in and around high school? Are you a, a native of either Brooklyn or Los Angeles, or did you have sort of any tie to the Dodgers story and, and you know, the personnel involved, or, or just was it something you read or got inspired by from some movie, or what was the rationale? I am a native of Los Angeles. I grew up a big Dodger fan, and when I was 16 in my high school history class, a U.S. history class, a man named Frank Wilkinson came and spoke to us about the experience of being blacklisted in the Red Scare. And he was a public housing official in Los Angeles in the 1950s who was sort of the principal engine behind a very ambitious project that was going to be called Elysian Park Heights. And Elysian Park Heights was going to be sort of a state-of-the-art utopian public housing project with 3,500 units. And it was going to sit in these hills above downtown L.A. that now are the home of Dodger Stadium. And he told the story of how the housing authority evicted a thousand plus families to build this project and how it was scuttled in a red scare conspiracy, which led to the Dodgers arrival from Brooklyn. And I was just fascinated from the get go. Well, and this is something that I think, you know, most sort of uh, historians and or sort of fans of baseball, it's history. We've sort of done a lot on, you know, the expansion generally in sports and, and, and baseball in particular. And obviously the big sort of thunderbolt that was the Giants and the Dodgers leaving uh, for the supposedly sunnier climbs of of Los Angeles. But, I, you know, I think it's lost on a lot of people in the main sort of narrative, maybe even in L.A. too, frankly, 
you know, about sort of the, this doesn't just, you know, snap one's fingers and it magically happens, right? There's obviously other kinds of machinations involved. And, and I think maybe less sort of understood is in the case of sort of building the stadium, which by the way, is, you know, one of the longest standing and still used stadiums right now in baseball, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a history behind this stuff and it's frankly not sort of clean and, uh, uh, free of being sort of, uh, you know, nefarious and or sorted. Maybe you can explain a little bit sort of of what was sort of going on in and around that sort of project and that sort of desire about public housing. And maybe that'll set the scene sort of how the the Brooklyn version of the Dodgers started to enter into all of it, because certainly politics and the mayor and all that kind of stuff certainly plays into it. But before all that happens and you spend the first half of the book sort of getting into it, uh, there is this sort of public housing uh, aspect of it that has nothing to do with baseball, I'm assuming. Well, nothing in, to do with baseball until it does, I guess. Uh, so the the story really begins with these communities. There were three communities that were kind of nestled in these hills just north of downtown LA, and they were called Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. And they were comprised almost entirely of immigrants from Mexico and then you know second generation immigrants, their kids. And these communities were really tightly knit. They were a little bit kind of semi-rural almost. They they were in the hills and they, they didn't have great government services. There was a lot of restrictions about where non-white people could live and own property in LA. And in this particular part of the city, you know, you could buy property, but that also came with sort of being neglected by, by your local government and written off, which they were. And then after World War II, there was starting before, but really after, there was a desperate need for for housing in LA. The city really boomed in the first half of the 20th century and the population expanded rapidly and it became a sort of desperate thing. How are we gonna house everybody? And at the time, public housing hadn't yet gone out of fashion. And there was this notion that, you know, we could plan great communities for people and the government could build them and rent them out at a reasonable price and get people on the path to home ownership down the line. But there were obviously opponents to, to that idea, and they were, you know, real estate developers, um, builders, you know, property owners around the city who who didn't like that idea and didn't didn't want their tax dollars going to subsidize housing for people. So, what you have is this particular sort of political issue and these communities colliding when the city decides to make the site of these communities, the site of its most ambitious public housing project in 1949. That's the, uh, that was the National Housing Act of 49, yeah? Yes. So they, they got a bunch of federal funds after Harry Truman signed the National Housing Act, which made, just provide a lot of money for public housing around the country and also did a lot to secure mortgages and sort of stabilize and regulate the private home industry. Sorry, not to get off topic. So what happens is that this guy, Frank Wilkinson, who spoke to my history class, goes door to door, you know, around this around his neighborhoods. And he's telling people that they're going to have to leave their homes. And for a few years, it looks like it's going to happen that way. Uh, property owners start to sell. The neighborhood clears out little by little. But a few people in the neighborhood are resisting. And while this is happening, the sort of conservative arch powers in L.A., uh, are aligning to stop public housing and to take back control of the mayorship from a moderate pro-housing mayor. So in 1952, this guy Frank Wilkinson is 
testifying at an eminent domain hearing related to, to Elysian Park Heist, related to the housing project. And the attorney for the plaintiff suddenly starts to ask him to name his political affiliations throughout his life. And that's a very obvious code for tell us if you're a member of the Communist Party. Frank refused to answer, but it turned out that he was a member of the Communist Party. And that information had somehow become known to his opponents. Uh, and really, as soon as that happened, that was the end of public housing in L.A. The walls came crashing down. These people had been evicted from their homes for no reason. And suddenly the city was left with this giant lot um, mostly cleared out that it didn't know what to do with. So I'm sorry. So this this idea of the, this progressivism, if you will, of generally the National Housing Act and, and its specific uh, applicability to the situation in Los Angeles was dramatically, I guess, in, conflated now with that of the Red Scare and communism uh, that was also sort of besetting the United States at this time with the McCarthy hearings and, and the such. Yeah, what you have is as as sort of these like progressive social programs start to gain steam and maybe not even gain steam. Some of it's kind of leftover momentum from the New Deal and FDR. But you really get the sort of coinciding rise of McCarthyism. You get the rise of J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI and the rise of HUAC and all these sort of establishments that are sort of building political power and capital by taking down social programs and by accusing people of communism, often sort of nefariously and recklessly. So it's interesting because, and obviously, you know, you look at other sort of regions in the country, right? Chicago with sort of these sort of uh, large sort of concentrated multi-tiered structures uh, in urban areas that was sort of their way in New York, obviously, and the Robert Moseses of the world trying to sort of figure out how to, but, but it's also extremely interesting in that in the LA case, it sounds like it was sort of making, if you will, progress using sort of a blend of eminent domain and, and I guess, I don't know, strong arming various owners of uh, properties to, to kind of sort of buy into and or assume that this was inevitable. And it almost seems like it takes a complete 90 degree turn at sort of this point when it becomes sort of a bigger, more controversial and maybe less uh, assured sort of uh, approach. Yeah. I mean, the people who were advocating for public housing in L.A. were not doing it so they could maybe they were on some level, but they really believed they were true believers in the idea that public housing could lead us to a better world. That was that was their deep down belief. Even some of the planners who who designed Elysian Park Heights and architects, you know, the, this this particular project was going to involve these tall towers. And because of the kind of soil that was in that area, they couldn't they needed to get a certain amount of density. So they had to build up. And at the time in L.A., that just the very notion of building kind of vertical housing units for people was extremely off-putting to a, to a lot of housing advocates. They thought it would be sort of counterproductive to the idea of making a clean living, sort of pleasant public housing project. So if you go now around L.A. and you look at public housing projects, they're all kind of garden apartment style. They're, they're sprawled out. They're, they're not towers like you had in Chicago or New York. Right, like the Caprini Greens in Chicago, notorious, and, and you know, I, 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 based on on my sort of research and and the reading of, of of your book, which is just it's fascinating. We'll get into more of it. Yeah, I mean, there it, there wasn't just a handful of these towers. I, I think it was like something in 
you know, a, thirteen uh, towers. It was going to be thirteen towers on the hill. That's that's amazing. And you think about sort of how LA is sort of sort of structured and whatnot. And frankly, can you envision that now where Dodger Stadium sort of sits? It would look odd, I guess. Right now, I, that obviously assumes that other projects like this might then sort of also dot the landscape. But but wow, that's a, a pretty dramatic and bold uh, uh, view, say, of how the urban landscape would look in the early 50s if it were to go through. Yeah, one, one, of, the, one of the planners compared it to a, an Acropolis, like a Greek Acropolis for L.A. It was, I mean, architecturally, and I, I can tell you this, the red renderings were, they were stunning. I mean, it was Richard Nitra, who was uh, one of the great kind of California architects of the time, was behind it. And it would have been, at least for a little while, I think, from a distance, beautiful. But I don't know if that would have been the right thing for the city or not. And I think the people who live there would have told you that it certainly would not have been the right thing for the city. Well, so this this battle for then Chavez Ravine, I guess, is is sort of now enjoined, right? Because now it becomes a little bit more, well, actually a lot more. What's going to happen to this land that's been, if you will, partially or uh, significantly uh, acquired and or recategorized, I guess? What, what happens now, given sort of this dramatic turn of events? So, so the book follows kind of the principal heart of the book is this family, the Adechica family, and especially the matriarch of the family, Abrana Adechica. And she had come to the United States from Mexico when she was a teenager, lived in Arizona in a copper mining town, and then came to LA in the early 20s. And she and her husband built their house, you know, by hand. Um, and they kind of become keys in this fight over what's going to happen next. They refuse to sell uh, to the government. They had been engaged in a legal battle to, you know, stop the public housing project. And so, and, and by the now, way, now, they weren't the only ones resisting, right? I mean, it was, no, not yeah. at all. It, it was, it was a community of people who had been become accustomed to having to fight to get, you know, a community center built or to get bus service. So, so there was already a sense of determination and a sense of self-determination amongst, amongst the people of these three communities. And they, you know, they took the fight kind of to the city government and to the state. And so you have this land that's sort of been altered, right? Houses have been demolished and some of them have been rolled down the hill to other parts of the city. Um, dirt is going up and down, you know, grounds are getting leveled. But now you still have people who live there and in this sort of half destroyed community. And they basically threw every wrench they could to make sure that they got their land back. Their argument was that you took our house or tried to take our house to build a public housing project. That's not happening. You have no more standing to take our home. Yes, it almost seems like it's they're even more vulnerable now than sort of the decision about whether to sell or not, especially now given the sort of uncertainty and the change of plans. But maybe you could also sort of mention, I think, what seems to be sort of a, a... a major turning point in all this is the election of of Norris Paulson as mayor, right? Because that certainly plays a major role into sort of maybe now what's going to come out of the quote unquote ashes of what was originally planned. Yes. So Norris Paulson was a pretty much a little known, little regarded congressman. And in the end of 1952, um, sort of this council of L.A. elders led by Norman Chandler, who owns the L.A. Times, decides on him. I mean, they literally had a meeting and picked him to be their candidate for mayor the following year to defeat housing um, and kind of be a business-friendly patsy mayor. 
I mean, Polson literally described this happening to him. They said they would give him a Cadillac to drive around in. And he says, okay. And he does it. And he becomes the mayor of LA in 1953. And his first order of business is to basically end the city's agreement with the federal government over the funds they had gotten to build all this housing. So that leaves the city with this position where they had, the city had acquired the land and they technically owned it, even as the residents who were resisting stayed. So they were in a position where they had to use the land for a quote unquote public purpose because the land had been acquired by the government with eminent domain. And now they, now they're sitting here kind of with these tenants they don't want and no real sense of what to do next with with these hills overlooking downtown. Let me stop you right there because I want to. I just want to unpack that a little bit because first of all, we're talking about an era when newspapers actually were, dare I say, relevant and powerfully so. And you're mentioning the Chandler family. I don't think I can escape the narrative here without sort of asking, I guess, the question about how influential, truly, and or manipulative, perhaps. Uh, the Chandler family, the Times, and all that were in, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, standing up Paulson as, as a mayoral candidate. I mean, I, I guess what I'm sort of getting at and maybe sowing the potential questionable seed around is how how entwined are these two actors, shall we say? And and is even baseball even on the radar at this point? Maybe behind the scenes, maybe unwittingly, even to Paulson. I don't know. So baseball is on the radar, and this goes beyond Norman Chandler. You know, baseball, L.A. was already a baseball town before the major leagues came. There was two teams in the Pacific Coast League, the Hollywood Stars and the L.A. Angels. They each had nice stadiums. They they had big followings. They had good players. Uh, you know, in times in the 40s, uh, you could have argued that the Coast League was better than certain National League and American League teams. Absolutely. And so this was not, you know, like a backwater, right? We're talking about a city that... God, by the time the Dodgers came, you know, L.A. had twice double the population of Boston and, you know, Boston had two teams in the 50s and L.A. didn't have one. So baseball is kind of happening. There's a lot of actors in L.A. who are trying to bring the majors in as early as like the early 40s. You know, St. Louis Browns almost came to L.A. right before Pearl Harbor and then World War Two ended that possibility. And there was a few other kind of false starts. But so th- there had been ongoing efforts to make LA a big league city. And that was very important to a lot of people in LA to get that, to get baseball was a sort of symbol of, of being established, of being a truly American capital. And even though I think baseball was a lot smaller as an institution, you know, in terms of its physical footprint, then uh, it, it held even more symbolic power. So you have people trying to bring baseball to LA while all this is happening throughout. And there's a million different ideas being thrown out there for stadiums. Uh, you know, in the early 50s, while the housing thing is happening, on the same ballot, actually, as Norris Polson getting elected mayor, there's a young councilwoman named Rosalind Wyman, who is a progressive Democrat running as a 22-year-old for city council, and she wins partly on a platform of bringing baseball to L.A. So, so this is really happening at the same time. And to speak to Norris Polson and the Chandler family in the Times, I actually think looking at them as separate actors is probably a mistake. Not to disrespect Norris Polson, but he was just a little bit of foam on the Chandler wave. Uh, he he doesn't exist as mayor of L.A. without the Chandlers and without their allies. Um, I don't think the Chandlers were looking at using this land as a baseball stadium that, at the time. I think they were looking at 
cementing their power. And although L.A. was not a one-paper town, the L.A. Times were very powerful, and the Chandlers did not just own one paper. That's extremely interesting, and or I, I, I'm sure there is even conjecture on on that. But I guess it's not too far afield to say that he's arguably maybe a puppet of the Chandler family, if you will, and 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 some of the some of the I guess designs perhaps on on what maybe altruistically, maybe not about what Los Angeles could and should look like. But it's also interesting to hear sort of the confluence of how baseball, frankly, not from one particular side of the. I guess, political or progressive aisle or the other, right? Where it almost feels in some respects that, and you just gave a couple of examples, that, you know, baseball is looked upon and almost uh, uh, aligned with uh, a a number of different sort of political viewpoints. Uh, And arguably that becomes interestingly, maybe you would think a unifying thing, but but baseball certainly is interesting uh, across the aisle, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, everybody loves baseball, right? That's, That's across, you know, race and across political party and across different regions of the city. I don't think there was a partisan opposition to baseball. In fact, I think this whole story, you end up with some really strange and unlikely political alliances in LA. Yeah, but I guess it's also different if you're in the zone as it becomes, and maybe I can get into that part of it, is sort of how how this sort of plan begins to surreptitiously and obviously reveal itself. If you're in the crosshairs of still owning property there, perhaps, you know, even if you are a quote unquote baseball fan, I, you know, then it becomes a little bit different, right? Because it becomes a little nimby here. I don't want it in my neighborhood per se, or the, the intrigue seems to be building here. Yes. So obviously, you know, you can see the inevitable collision happening at the end of this highway. Uh, there's a mostly empty patch of land near downtown at the confluence of two freeways. There's a city that's desperate for a baseball team. And there's a few kind of scrappy homeowners fighting to preserve their community. You can guess who's going to win that fight. How does it how does it play out? How does the how do the forces of government and maybe perhaps how the Brooklyn and O'Malley part of it sort of becomes comes into play as being the driving force of it? I guess which came first, the desire for baseball and they will come or you know, Brooklyn essentially making itself more pronounced as the actual team that might actually wind up. Maybe a little bit of insight as to how sort of the mechanics of some of that sort of comes about. Yeah, absolutely. So there were, I mean, there were efforts to bring baseball into LA, specifically, you know, with the city negotiating with teams going back a decade. And there were also times when the city would kind of wink at Walter O'Malley in Brooklyn and say, hey, come to L.A. The Dodgers at the time were, like they are now, you know, a model franchise. They were big. They were famous. They won a lot. You know, they were in the World Series every year, even if they weren't winning the World Series. Uh, they, were, they were an iconic team in Brooklyn. And people in L.A. kind of had this idea that we, we don't want a bad team. We want a team that's worth our, you know, our own greatness, our own sense of sense of self. So, so the Dodgers became a, uh, a sort of dream target. Uh, Abbott and Costello would talk about how the Dodgers should come to L.A. I mean, it was it was a it was it was an open fantasy of the city, and throughout the fifties, who, who who's who do you think is flirting more with the idea? Is it is it? 
Oh, it's definitely L.A. Uh, Walter O'Malley, I think, at this point, still sees Brooklyn as his home. And I, I learned a lot about this from a book called City of Dreams by Gerald Podere. And he does an amazing job of sort of getting into the, the nitty-gritty of these negotiations. So what's happening is that in New York, Walter O'Malley wants a new stadium. The Dodgers play in Ebbets Field, which was beloved, but it's also kind of a dump. It doesn't have amenities. It's small. It's falling apart. It doesn't have parking, which is a fixation for Walter O'Malley. And it was a fixation for everybody in mid-century America. So you have this guy who wants a new stadium, but he wants to stay in Brooklyn, and he wants to be the private owner of a stadium. And then you have the aforementioned Robert Moses, who controls everything in New York, especially when it comes to public land. And he insists that the Dodgers move to Queens and play in a publicly built stadium that ends up happening. It becomes Shea Stadium, where the Mets are going to play. But this battle between... O'Malley and Moses sort of defines the Dodgers or sort of the subtext to the whole Dodger run in the 1950s. And really in the beginning, I think O'Malley saw LA as a negotiating chip. He said he could threaten to move to LA so he could get what he wanted in Brooklyn. And, you know, he kind of keeps flirting, starting to flirt more and more, you know, Dodger officials or excuse me, city officials of LA are coming out to Brooklyn and to spring training in Florida to, to lure him. And, and he's, making a point to be seen with them publicly to, to get under the skin of the New York politicians. And finally it becomes apparent to him that it's actually a better deal for him to go to LA. But it's my understanding that, that O'Malley to his part of all of this, right. Was well, okay. But explain this to me. My understanding is that there was sort of a, a more formal entreaty and, and land was sort of circled for, the potential move for the for the Dodgers to come to L.A., but it wasn't the Chavez Ravine plot. There were a few different um, attempts, and he was sort of shown different options in L.A. But this was the this was the part of the city that appealed to him the most. He he was set on building a stadium in his image. Walter O'Malley uh, is often painted as this sort of villain in these stories, and if you live in Brooklyn, that's extremely reasonable. Uh, but if you're a baseball fan overall, O'Malley has to be appreciated as a sort of visionary for the baseball experience and for making baseball a, a kind of pleasant spectator sport in a way that it hadn't been. He wanted to build a stadium that was family friendly, that had open concourses, that had all these kind of amenities that we now take for granted. And he saw that land at the intersection of the freeways, right in the center of the city with a lot of acreage. It was 300 acres where he could build as many parking lots as he could possibly dream of as a perfect canvas for him to embark on his project. Well, maybe also explain a little bit about what's happening in the actual Chavez Ravine area in the midst of all of this, right? Because there are some holdouts that are still there. There's obviously some vacant land or, or un unattended buildings now that people have been sort of somehow either uh, scared off or bought off to uh, what's happening in the actual location itself while all this is starting to play out. I mean, not a lot. So you have the few families who have stayed and they live in this sort of quiet semi ghost town now um, where, you know, the, the schools eventually closed, the churches eventually closed and it, it kind of gradually becomes just these few families who are holding out and who are, refusing to, to give up their homes. And the city is embarking on this sort of ineffective quest to, to get rid of them. Um, 
you know, the city tried to, you know, capture the dogs of the Adechiga family with a dog catcher and ransom them off effectively to get them to leave. Like, you know, it didn't work. They, they were not able to, to get them out of there and they were not willing to, to negotiate. They, there was a sticking point with that family about the price that was offered for their land by the government. Uh, it was three lots with two houses on them and the city offered $10,050 and uh, another appraiser had said it was worth 17500 And the Adechiga said, we want the 17000 And the city said no. And that was sort of a stalemate. Then this is all ongoing. And there's lawsuits back and forth and all of it happening while the Dodgers are still in Brooklyn and negotiating this deal. Well, the, the Lando is still, it hasn't changed in terms of its, I guess, demarcation, right? It's, be, it's still being held and and, I guess, legally defined as being for, quote unquote, public use or public purposes, right? So it's not like yes. people can move back in. So it's amazing what uh, a good deal or the promise of big league baseball can do for your definition of public. Uh, the city yeah, essentially well, that, decides the, that, that this is question. a public yeah. purpose. The, the council kind of just went, okay, well, we're going to say this is a public purpose. And so the deal is eventually struck with Walter O'Malley after the 1957 season Uh, Brooklyn announces they're moving to L.A. They get to L.A. He lands at LAX, a conquering hero. There's throngs of people around him. And O'Malley is immediately hit uh, by a process server, uh, basically telling him that his his deal is illegal. He's going to court. And the battle has now just begun for him. So what happened was that opponents to the stadium deal, this is kind of a, a weird mix of Entertainment industry people who didn't want the competition of the Dodgers, the ownership of the San Diego Padres, who were a Pacific Coast League team, uh, kind of libertarian conservative politicians, and the homeowners who were stuck, not stuck, but still fighting uh, for their for their land, have this consortium alliance of opponents to the deal. And they make a case that this is not a, a public purpose, that taking land from somebody with eminent domain and then selling it to an out-of-town businessman to build a private baseball stadium is the opposite of a public purpose. And it's a pretty good case, I think, looking back. Um, So it goes to a ballot measure in L.A. And so soon after the Dodgers played their first game in L.A., and they played in the Memorial Coliseum, which is a football stadium, there's a vote on whether the Dodger stadium deal should be held up. Which is... Interesting, fascinating, and also now it gets a little sort of strategic when it comes to public relations, right? I mean, you know, O'Malley's making the decision or somehow uh, based on some level of uh, assumption, right, that uh, his team will have some level of eventual permanent domicile location and, and whatever, right? And and maybe this is obviously still uncertain or up in the air, but, you know... I, you wonder if a if a vote like this occurs before the Dodgers are even named or before, certainly before they even actually land and start playing in what is it admittedly going to be a temporary situation in the LA Coliseum. Even though the vote was relatively close, which I'm sure you'll get to in a second, I, you know, from a PR perspective, it's uh, it's probably the best uh, best way to go into an election or a, a referendum than you know, having them already playing and being wildly successful at 90,000 people going to games. Yeah, I mean, the Coliseum was huge, right? So it's this 100,000-person building that was constructed for the 32 Olympics, and they're filling it up. Uh, celebrities are going to games. 
it's a big deal in LA that the Dodgers are there. But at the same time, the city has a lot of second thoughts about, do we really want to sell our souls, quote unquote, for a New York businessman? Do we want to give our tax dollars to somebody to build a stadium that they're going to profit off of? Do we want to invest, you know, millions of dollars of money to build highway exits to, to get to the stadium? And this is a complicated issue. Um, and as much as people love the Dodgers and having them, you know, 48% of the city ends up voting no uh, or staying. It's, it was really close. And it took a lot of work from the Dodgers and from their allies to win this campaign. So, I mean, give our give our audience a sense of, and, and obviously all this sort of is, is dramatically unveiled in the, in this book, which is just, it's... Uh, it, it's heartbreaking. It's it's sad. It's it's in, and just all, all intriguing. The last holdouts, right? I mean, this is going on in the late fifties. You've got a lot of folks. I, it seems like the I don't know. I mean, the vote obviously is a, is a fait accompli. Perhaps uh, certainly once the results are announced, obviously that becomes uh, still forty percent. Still is is a minority to the sixty percent or so that voted for it. Uh, for, it was fifty two, fifty two to forty eight. Actually, it was okay. really close. Much closer. Yeah. Okay, so my I, my apologies. So, but uh, the resistance though is still relatively strong. Uh, what sort of what kind of tactics are ongoing on this front? And I, it's got to be exceedingly difficult even to hold out, uh, given all these seemingly growing forces uh, that you know want to push sort of this thing into fruition. It was difficult, and the families that were holding out were doing it under duress, and they were doing it because they felt strongly that this was their land and that they had been screwed over, basically. So while, you know, even after this vote, there's still a lot of litigation about whether or not the stadium deal meets the public purpose, you know, clause of that that they that it was supposed to. Uh, the vote doesn't necessarily settle it. They they say actually, you know, this has to go to the California State Supreme Court, or it goes to Superior Court, and then the State Supreme Court. And at first, the family wins their suit in um, in the Superior Court of L.A. So even after the referendum, there's there's an injunction basically preventing O'Malley from beginning construction on the stadium. So the Dodgers are kind of playing in the Coliseum and not knowing when they're going to get to. Uh, to start building their permanent home. Uh, and finally, in 1959, the city, the state Supreme Court says, no, actually, you know, this is settled. Uh, this, the family wants to appeal to the, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and while they're waiting to hear whether the Supreme Court will take their case, the city uh, ultimately orders their eviction, which is carried out by county sheriff's department uh, deputies. And the eviction on May 8th, 1959, happened to be on live TV in LA. So it, it was, it was a, it was, it was an event. How? I mean, obviously that's gotta be staged, right? Well, it was, it was, so there was kind of a series of eviction orders and, uh, it was well known at that time, you know, what, what day those orders were for. So first it was supposed to be March 8th and then April 8th. And finally it was going to be May 8th. And these are, you know, these are public documents and public records. And this is a story that's being covered regularly in the press in LA. So you have, you know, a media that's hungry for attention, a relatively new industry in, in TV news looking for pictures. And you have some politicians on both sides of this who want to make a name. Uh, that results in, you know, not a very, not a very, um, it's a big city, but it's a small town in terms of, you know, the civic center of L.A. 
whispers are, are whispered and meeting the, the deputies at the front door of the Adechiga residence are a pack of photographers and, and video cameras. So given that sort of dramatic live play out of events, you would think that that would sort of draw more outrage and maybe solidarity for their cause, but it doesn't seem to sort of fall out that way. So it does for a moment. Uh, it, there's a, a major outcry for a few days. Uh, I mean, this the, it looks really bad. You have old women being being carried out by deputies. You have people being carried out by their by their hands and feet. You know, downstairs. You you see the family watching their home get bulldozed right before their eyes, and you wonder, did the city really need to violently evict them? Uh, city and the county, to be fair. And then somebody gives a tip to a local journalist that the Adechiga family owned other property in L.A. And a lot of the sympathetic coverage of their plight had been kind of written under the assumption that they were impoverished and they had nowhere else to go. And this was their only home. And this was their only the only way that they could continue to, to live was to stay here. When, in fact, for them, the home was was their home. I mean, it was where they lived. And some of the kind of children and grandchildren of the family had bought property and the family had done OK. You know, they had worked hard and they had saved up and kind of done what you're supposed to do. And a lot of their stand was was about principle. It wasn't necessarily about desperation. It would seem, though, that um, that I guess perhaps some of the the journalistic drumbeat, perhaps by the Chandler own times in particular, right, could make that uh, story into more of a, of a meal, I guess. And um, despite the seemingly innocence, I guess, but it's, uh, I guess it, you know, it's hard to sort of put that against the, the wave of, of, of popularism for, for the team elsewhere too. Yeah. I mean, people were outraged in LA. It, the idea that, that this family could own other property uh, and then portray themselves as, as needy, even if they, I don't think they were really portraying themselves that much a little bit. I don't think they really argued with it because I think it helped the, their cause. They were, they were pretty savvy, but they, they really, um, the media went after them and not just the media politicians went after them the mayor wrote like an 800 word statement that was published in the papers really and it was just a pure i mean loathing sort of document about about this particular family the adichiga family uh it was they piled on after that and and the, the tide of public opinion turned yeah, I mean, it seems like a huge double standard, and then some. So, all right, well, who's culpable in this? Then, I mean, how much is O'Malley culpable in this? Right? I mean, obviously, he's here, he's waiting. He, yeah, I don't know how many Plan Bs or Plan Cs he might have in terms of other locations at this point. Is or is he just kind of a sort of a distant, not even sort of direct actor in all of this while this is playing out, or is he basically the the invisible hand behind all this, or somewhere in between that? I think he's somewhere in between. I think he, you know, when he bought that land. Uh, and he bought it under pretty favorable terms, in my opinion. I think he inherited some responsibility for it. I, I don't think when you buy a piece of property, you can just sort of wash your hands of what had happened there before and what was still happening there. That said, the wheels were set in motion way before Walter O'Malley ever came to L.A. This is a, a tragedy that was decades in the making and that doesn't really have one bad guy. You know, I think the bad guy is sort of the system of government and corruption in L.A. in the 50s, um, sort of kind of a that's Chinatown situation. It's Chinatown. Uh, forget it, Jake. Yeah. Uh, the notion that, you know, just the public housing guys fault. Not really. I mean, they 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 did evict the families, but they had a, you know, a, a purpose and then they were undermined. Um, 
I guess you could say it was the the Chandler family's fault, but that's almost unfair to to just pick a distant uh, villain who's not really directly involved in the action. It, it was it was a civic tragedy that that had universal civic responsibility at its heart. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I guess the layman in, in all this would probably come and look at this, perhaps in the rearview of history or, or maybe at the time, as you'd think that it's, you know, and maybe this is through the lens of today's modern sports complex, which arguably is maybe in the midst of some change, given our current situations in life. But, um, you know, it's the it's the sports team. It's the civic pride thing. And it's it's a, a greater supposed good, uh, albeit rich with private business interests uh, that, you know, inevitably is going to be someone's to someone's detriment because there has to be a location. Uh, there's got to be a building and a construction. And, you know, some people are going to get hurt. And, you know, that's arguably the price to pay, so to speak. Right. Uh, whether yeah. it's in a domain or whatever. Right. But, you know, there's still uh, that doesn't make it right. No. And I mean, people, you know, you this is a very unique story, right? I mean, the the events with the public housing and the specific sort of sequences that that occurred to lead to Dodger Stadium are kind of sui generis. They're, they're not necessarily universal, but I think the overarching action where you have, in the end, a poor neighborhood or a poor working class neighborhood, uh, people who had less political power, displaced by people who had a lot of political power to make way for essentially a private business interest. I mean, that's a universal tale as old as time, and it's still happening uh, right now in L.A. even. Yeah, well, Frank, so it feels to me like the Dodgers were able to, if you will, take advantage of a situation that was already uh, convoluted, challenging, and and convenient almost. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I I don't think that, you know, this, you know, Dodger Stadium happens without all the stuff that happened preceding the Dodgers move west. Um, The Dodgers might not even move to L.A. if those things didn't happen. They might not have moved if O'Malley didn't see the sight of Dodger Stadium, you know, riding around in a helicopter in the 50s. All right, let's round third base on on, on this this discussion. This is fascinating to me, and obviously there's a lot of really excellent uh, reporting and detail uh, in, in the book, and we'll sort of promote it certainly before and after the this interview itself, of course. Did you ever, in the process of putting this together, uh, maybe this is more of a process question, did you descend into a rabbit hole or two about sort of some of the things we are just talking about, the what-ifs, right? What if the public housing projects uh, and or... Uh, a continuation of that sort of uh, progressive uh, notion in the late 40s, early 50s in the in the country and applied to L.A. happened. Uh, would, do you think, a Dodgers or a, another major league team come to L.A. and or where else might this have either occurred or other lands that come to play? And frankly, also, uh, perhaps what would have happened to Chavez Ravine had it not been disturbed, so to speak? Would it be you know, culturally relevant and vibrant. And I, I know those are all sort of speculative questions, but uh, I'm sure there's a little what if that comes into play as you get through the story. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to not speculate, right? I mean, the first question is about housing. It's interesting because Frank Wilkinson, the housing official uh, kind of at the center of this book, he continued to insist all the way to the end of his life that had Elysian Park Heights been built, had L.A. fulfilled its 10,000 units of public housing that it was supposed to from the Housing Act of 49 and continued on with a vibrant housing program, the city would never have had the Watts riots or the Rodney King riots. And that, you know, 
race relations and police relations and poverty in the city would have would have really been a lot better. And he was a true believer in housing and in the power of government to to make people's lives better. I mean, it's hard to say what would have happened because it's really hard to imagine a world in which not only does L.A. build all that public housing, but continues to support it politically for so long. Um, I mean, no city in America has continued kind of ambitiously fund and support public housing. And that's partly because of mainly because of federal government choices. Uh, That said, you know, who knows? It would have been interesting. Uh, It would have been a very different L.A. And in terms of whether that neighborhood had remained intact, I think it probably would have become gentrified, like all the neighborhoods that are around around it. You know, uh, Echo Park in L.A., Silver Lake, all these parts of the city, um, the Elysian Valley now have become become gentrified and you're seeing people displaced for different reasons. Which is sadly a story uh, that, to your earlier point, is sort of time uh, it tends to be endless and, and, and always sort of uh, cyclically always always the case. Where, where do you think in, in your estimation, where do you think the Dodgers or another eventually relocated team coming to Los Angeles would have, well, I guess that's, that's, that's sort of beyond the point. Where do you think the Dodgers would have gone had Chavez Ravine not ultimately happened? Did you ever get, think about that? Or was there any little bit to where that might go, where they might go? Would they, would they have taken over Wrigley Field and made it their own from the PCL? Or, or what, do you, what do you think? They might have. I mean, Walter O'Malley owned Wrigley Field. So he, he bought Wrigley Field and then traded it to the, Wrigley Field, by the way, was a small stadium in South L.A. Uh, that had been home to the PCL uh, Angels. And it was a very beautiful stadium. Uh, it wasn't that big. Some people in L.A. have been advocating for turning it into a major league stadium even before the Dodgers came. But O'Malley didn't see it as as sufficient. So he ends up buying it and then swapping it to the city for the undeveloped land that becomes Dodger Stadium. And he could have gone there. The Angels played there for one year. Um, he could have gone to Anaheim where the Angels played. He could have maybe gone to Inglewood. Uh, I think there there were other possibilities, but I don't think any of them necessarily suited what he wanted. So... It's hard to say what he would have done without without this kind of to him perfect stage on which to to set baseball. Well, what do you think the legacy of all this is? Because I mean, as the '60s sort of dawned, '62 when the park opened, it was actually I, I, it's lost on me until fairly recently that, um, and I'm not a Los Angelino by, uh, I've lived there for a couple of years in my in my life, but I haven't, uh, you know, I wouldn't grow up and raise there. I, di- I didn't realize that the Dodgers and the newly um, formed LA Angels played. Uh, I guess the first three seasons, both in the new Dodger Stadium. Yeah, the Angels' first season, I think, was in Wrigley, um, and then they moved to Dodger Stadium with, with with the Dodgers. I mean, the legacy of of this story, I think, it's complicated. Um, there was, you know, there's a, a line of thinking that because of this, the Dodgers were not able to draw Mexican American fans uh, for a long time until Fernando Valenzuela, you know, entered the scene in '81. I'm not sure how how true that is. I think that if you look at the vote in 58, uh, you know, Mexican-American neighborhoods in L.A. actually voted overwhelmingly for the stadium. And I think that probably there just wasn't that many Mexican-American fans going to games. Uh, I think you have people who see, you know, this story as a cautionary tale fairly. Uh, there's a perspective from the kind of libertarian pers- side that, you could argue that this is a case against eminent domain, and I think that's a pretty good case too. Uh, 
it's really kind of a funny thing because Dodger Stadium is this, you know, and I, I write in the book about it. I love Dodger Stadium. I think it's a beautiful building. I think it's emblematic of L.A. in so many ways, good and bad. And it's hard to imagine an L.A. now without it. But it's also kind of hard to imagine a Dodger Stadium without all this fascinating and some of it ugly history underneath. And here's my last question, I guess. How much, I think I know the answer to this, how, how much of this is remembered? How much How much is on the Dodgers organization to, I don't know, perhaps maybe with the wellspring of, of now sort of Latin American, Mexican fans, obviously the, the Fernando Valenzuela era sort of rekindling that. I, I'm wondering if any of the tensions and any, any of the ugliness of this story surfaced during that period of time and or since, or is it truly kind of buried and bulldozed like a lot of the land originally was done itself to, to build the stadium? It's funny. There's a, there's a nonprofit started by some of the descendants of these families called Buried Under the Blue. Uh, so you hit, you hit the right words. The, the story has been, is not officially talked about by the Dodgers, as far as I know. Um, you know they, they didn't respond to comment, respond to my, my, my inquiries for this book, and the organization itself does not talk about it. Uh, to their credit, the O'Malley family talks about it. I mean, they have a perspective on it, but they are not, you know, if you look at the Walter O'Malley website, which is really, really well curated, um, you know, they don't own the team anymore, but they don't, they don't pretend this didn't happen. Um, people in LA know about it. Some do, some don't. Some know more than others. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what happened. You know, I think there's a lot of people who think the Dodgers kicked out a thousand families and it wasn't that simple. I think it just depends who you are. Uh, there was, you know, a, a play that was pretty successful in LA. It's run a couple of times called Chavez Ravine. There was uh, an album by the musician Ry Cooter called Chavez Ravine. So it's not absent from culture, especially in LA, but it's not always necessarily on the forefront of people's minds either. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's give you a chance to, to promote. Obviously, we'll, we'll talk about it in, in the promos and all that kind of stuff. But tell us about uh, the availability of the book, what you're going to do. I, I would imagine at some point, uh, all things being equal, have some hopefully opportunity to maybe personally promote it or, or are there any other alliances or other things that uh, we might want to sort of keep an eye out or look for uh, in the support of this book and allowing, giving a, a, our audience hopefully a, a reason to share this with other people and tell them about it? Yeah, please, please do uh, check it out and, and share it. The book has a website. It's stealinghome.la. Uh, you can find links to buy it there. I'm telling people right now, especially if you can find it at an independent bookstore near where you live, that's the best thing for the book and for you. Uh, it'll probably get to you faster because Amazon has deprioritized books uh, amazingly. Uh, and because those stores really need the help right now. I'm, you know, on Twitter, I have a Account Eric E R I C N U S News. Uh, I have a newsletter. It's called Sports Stories. Uh, listeners to this podcast would probably like it. We cover a lot of obscure sports history. Uh, sportsstories.substack.com. And hopefully, when this is all over and the world's a little bit healed, uh, I'll get out and be able to promote it in person. All right. I know I say this a lot uh, in all these episodes, but, um, you know, proverbially and truly, I learned a lot. Uh, this is part of the Dodger story that I was uh, largely ignorant of. Uh, I know you uh, native Los Angelinos uh, may be uh, more understanding and, and aware of this story than I have in my little sort of cocoon here in Chicago uh, and uh, having grown up on the East Coast. 
uh, but it is an important part of the Dodgers narrative, whether the team currently and Major League Baseball currently acknowledges it or not. Uh, and you could do worse by uh, picking up a copy of uh, Eric's brand new book uh, to learn more. It is uh, it is extremely well written. Uh, it is written a lot through the uh, sort of eyes and ears of uh, of the people who lived through it, uh, the native uh, Mexican and Mexican-American families uh, that lived in Chavez Ravine prior to and during the sort of drama around uh, eminent domain and then some around getting the Dodgers uh, a stadium built in that very spot. And the book, again, is called Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the lives caught in between. Uh, it is uh, published by our pals at uh, Public Affairs, and uh, you can buy that copy for yourself and others uh, at all the various places. Amazon, of course, will have a link to that on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Eric Nussbaum. Uh, but as you heard Eric mention, supporting your independent bookstore, especially in these times, uh, not a bad idea. You may actually get it quicker and sooner. And by the way, supporting your local community at the same time uh, by ordering it in that fashion as well. However you get it, just get it for God's sakes. And um, you will enjoy it. Uh, immensely, I assure you. You can follow Eric on Twitter at Eric Nuss. That's E-R-I-C-N-U-S at Eric Nuss. Uh, on Twitter, you will uh, find more about the book and him and the, the writing of the book and all what's going on around promoting the book at stealinghome.la. That's the website, stealinghome.la. And uh, you can also subscribe uh, to a tremendous long-form uh, writing offering from Eric and uh, his pals at sportsstories.substack.com. If you're interested in all kinds of interesting takes on sports history, you uh, should subscribe now to that. That's, again, sports stories. There are two S's there, sportsstories.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com, and sign up for that. That's uh, a new revelation for me as well. Uh, and we look forward to uh, getting more great uh Stories from American. God forbid we'll have to uh, use it as an excuse, perhaps, uh, for another topic uh, for another day. Let's see. Before we uh, say goodbye to you, we want to thank uh, all of you, not only for listening and finding us and uh, hopefully enjoying a little bit of respite from the world's ills out there. But if you want to follow us on uh, Twitter, you can do that. We're at Good Seats Still uh, on Twitter. On uh, Instagram, you can follow us there. We're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you want to follow us on Facebook. There's a page devoted to us there. Uh, if you want to bookmark our website and follow us and enjoy all of the 150 plus episodes to date and then some, we post all of them there. Uh, and there's some great imagery there and uh, you can download all the episodes, do whatever you want. Uh, and we're at goodseatsstillavailable.com. It's pretty easy to remember. Uh, it's also the place where you can uh, click and send us some email, but you can do that directly too at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And on the website, you'll find a link where you can uh, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. And that's our little advanced uh, uh, warning, if you will, about what we're going to be uh, revealing uh, each and every week, uh, just a day or two ahead of the uh, the average Joe, so you can kind of get a head start, perhaps, on your listening uh, for the week. Uh, before we run, we want to say, of course, our continued and uh, enduring thanks to our pal down in Atlanta, the Atlanta metropolitan area, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence, and he's the guy who edits all of our stuff and makes us sound somewhat uh, palatable. Uh, I know it's a challenge for him each and every week, but uh, we appreciate it. Hey, look, he's getting paid. Don't uh, It's not a volunteer effort for sure, but, uh, you know, it's a, it can be a bit strenuous sometimes. And uh, we know we go out of our way sometimes to make it difficult for him, but he does a great job and we appreciate it. 
as we do each and every week. And of, of course, we want to thank you, the listener. Uh, you've been tremendous uh, over the years and over the especially the last couple of weeks. Thank you for uh, our, your great notes and comments. We love the fact that we're uh, hopefully helping you kind of get through uh, the struggles out there. We know that we're just a a, a mere speck uh, of a distraction, uh, given all the things that may be weighing on your uh, respective uh, minds these days. Uh, we are no different, we assure you. Uh, but hopefully uh, doing this and listening to this uh, gives us all a bit of uh, a comfort and uh, a little bit of distraction in the midst of uh, all the challenging times. Please hang in there, everybody. Do what you're supposed to do. And uh, hopefully next week, we'll be back with another great episode. Thank you for listening. And we're going to take you out with, um, frankly, uh, some great music that uh, also really uh, solidifies and uh, complements this episode and this uh, this story that we got into this week with Eric. Rye Cooter, the uh, uh, well-known musician, uh, it did a, an album back in 2005 on Nonesuch Records called, if wait for it, Chavez Ravine. And it's really the entire album. It's a fantastic uh, work that kind of gets into uh, the, the entire story of, of what we kind of got into this week. And uh, we're going to leave you with, uh, I think, perhaps one of the most poignant songs on that album. It's called Third Base, Dodger Stadium. It's haunting uh, like the story itself. And uh, we leave you with it. Again, Rye Cooter, it's on Nonesuch Records. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, stay safe and healthy, everybody. Take care. Mr. You're a baseball man As anyone can plainly see Trade game in his great land Take a little tip from me I work in nights, parking cars Underneath the moon and stars Same ones that we all knew Back in 1952 And if you want to know Where a local boy like me Is coming from Third base Dodger Yeah, I was kind. Now if the dozer hadn't 
Behind on break we used to 